Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another Word in Your Ear. I have to confess that my wife... Uh, yesterday evening, looked over my shoulder when I was reading this book. She said, not another book about the Beatles. I said, ah, but this is a book about the Beatles' road manager. And she looked at me as if I'd gone absolutely barking mad. But, of course, we're among friends, so we don't have to We don't have to apologise in any way for being absolutely fascinated uh, by the story of uh, of Mal Evans, as told in this new book, Living the Beatles Legend, uh, On the Road with the Fab Four, the Mal Evans story told by old friend of the pod, Kenneth Womack. We join Kenneth and his cat. And his cat. Where are you, Kenneth? New Jersey. I'm on the Jersey Shore, and this is my cat, Dave. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So tell us, Kenneth, you've previously written about, obviously, books about the Beatles and about George Martin. Um, which we talked to you about in the past. How did the idea of writing a Mal Evans book come up? I had zero plans to write about Mal. Um, I have always been, I'm sure like you guys, uh, interested in him, uh, wanting to know more. Why did he die in such a tragic way, et cetera? But um, I had no plans. But at the beginning of COVID, through a mutual friend, Gary Evans, Mal's son, who's now in his early 60s, contacted me and said, would you like to tell my dad's story? And so we were it was at the beginning of COVID. So we were on Zoom all the time and uh, during our shared lockdown. And uh, I, I knew within minutes I would do it since Gary is so wonderful and and uh, just a lovable guy, probably a lot like his dad. Um, but the real excitement came when I said, is there, there all this stuff? What about this stuff? And he said, do you want to see it? <laughs> and I said, well, I think I, I need to, you know, and, um, the next thing you know, it's here in New Jersey and, uh, Dave and I are ripping open the boxes and, and checking out all this wonderful material. 
And this is stuff that he, he did in 1974 or 1975, wasn't it? Uh, just before he died, when he got a, a, a contract to write the book. So he'd written all this stuff and it all been transcribed and, and printed out, hadn't it? Oh, no, it was much more than that. So it went right back to um, pre-fame, uh, including, you know, uh, Mal's first uh, Beatles fan club card when he was in the cavern uh, in 61, 62, those sorts of things. Oh, right. Uh, this is memorabilia as well. I thought this was just the... the, the oh, no, it's the whole yeah, yeah. boodle. So he started keeping diaries on January 1st, 1963, all the way through 1974, when he switched to uh, a really voluminous notebook um, where he was starting to capture his memories uh, for a planned memoir, which he wrote and completed in 1975. Um, and it turned out, I was very surprised by by the discovery, the 2,500 photographs, uh, most of which I had not seen, um, three fully completed manuscripts, one that he had written in 1965 yeah. about the Beatles' American tour, um, and then when he wrote his 1975 manuscript, he intended to insert 65 inside 75. Um, he had also left behind um, lots of just odd pens, really. He was kind of a pack rat. Uh, he had uh, many receipts, um, some lyrics. You know, he had been working on a project. Um, I don't know if I covered this in the book. He'd been working on this really interesting project where he was going to bring the songs from the white album to life with little pictures because they have, you know, such interesting characters and he was sort of imagining a storyline for them. So I, I have the blackbird, you know, and, and other little, uh, little drawings that he made from that period. So let's go back to the beginning because there's obviously two people who are described as Beatles road manager, personal assistants, whatever. One is Neil Aspinall, who died a few years ago, who was running Apple up until not long before he died. Uh, and the other was Mal Evans. So how did how did Mal come into their orbit? So when Mal shows up, Neil's been around for, I want to say, a good eight months or so, um, you know, driving them around, uh, you know, nickel and diming them to go from place to place, et cetera. Um, for extra money. And Mal comes into their orbit because he wanders down the stairs of the cavern in late 1961. He hears this, what he said was good rock and roll like Elvis. And uh, he couldn't get enough of it. Um, he, he was excited by the band, made friends with George Harrison first. Um, he would go to, you know, George's house or George would come over and hang out with uh, Lily and, and Mal and their new baby, <laughs> Gary. Um, and stay up while Lily made them bacon and eggs and things like that. But um, it, it was really just, uh, he was just a fan. He loved the music. It was the closest thing to Elvis he was going to hear as far as he was concerned. Uh, and it was a nice diversion from his day job with the GPO. Right. So he, he'd never previously been involved in roadieing or anything like that, because roadieing was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty uh, baby science, wasn't it, at the time, really? <laughs> You yeah, know, there, nobody there, uh, knew what it was. There were no mail order roadie courses at that point. You know, it was uh, <laughs> it was completely pioneering uh, uh, this kind of job, and and you know Neil was helping them, but of course in 1961, I doubt he was lugging their equipment for them too. That they, there was probably an expectation that they were going to take care of that. So yeah, there was no inclination. He had been trained as a telecommunications engineer and. 
He had a great job with a great pension. He was the first person in his family to own a home, a car. He was going places. And, and, he, until and he was by he then. He, that basement steps. What's that? He was in his late 20s by then, wasn't he? You know, he was at a point in life where, in those days, in the early 60s, your life was pretty much set for you, wasn't it? You know, particularly if, the, if somebody had married and had a child, that was what you were going to do. But he instead... He attached himself to the Beatles, and absolutely everything changed. That's right. And um, not only was was his life set for him, but imagine what it was like when he explained to his family that he was going to quit this incredible job that he had studied, that he'd been educated for, to go on the road with a pop group, uh, which had at best a shelf life of 18 months, and that's probably pushing it, you know really for what one might have believed in 1962 63 so that was that was there was quite a squabble in the household uh among many households when mal was making this decision right and so also what, they hadn't had that much success had they at the, at early on i mean he was involved he was involved in that extraordinary incident when they were driving back in 1963 in the blizzard which i think is quite a key moment about the bonding of the group can you just well, tell us that story Sure, and and it was really big for Ringo Starr because Ringo's the new guy. Um, yeah. And suddenly they're in this sort of perilous situation. They're driving back to Liverpool. When, when Mal starts full time, they've had two number one songs in Please Please Me and From Me to You. Um, so, you know, they were on less shaky ground. But, uh, of course, in January 1963, during the windscreen incident, they had had no number one songs other than a prediction from from their producer, which they laughed at. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, Mal Mal just happened to be there because Neil had the flu. And on the way back, uh, the windshield shattered uh, during the middle of a driving snowstorm. Um, John Lennon got into the act cutting holes for Mal out of a paper bag so he could see. And then they had a big bottle of hooch in the back. And as Paul said, they made a beetle sandwich. And... Uh, you know, it was. It was a huge bonding moment for him. But Neil was mostly impressed with what happened afterward, because when when Mal brought the van back to the Cosba, right, where Neil was living with uh, Mona Best, uh, Neil came out to the van, heard this this harrowing story and could not believe that Mal had already had the windscreen fixed. Yes. And so that he, was big. So he was a, he was an immensely practical person, wasn't he? That's right. You know, if you go through the night and you break a windscreen, you you're not polite if you don't bring back a new one. No, no. <laughs> but but obviously the Beatles were kind of they were pretty hopeless without him, weren't they? In terms of practical things. Yeah, they they kind of were, you know. And and Mal was someone who proved himself very early on. If he didn't know how to do something or where to get something, he'd figure it out. And by the time they stepped forward and they needed it, Mal and or Neil was there with it. I mean, when they famously become serious potheads, <laughs> you know, Mal and Neil developed this system where they had their own cellophane wrapping machine and they would make cartons of cigarettes where they had replaced the ciggies with weed, you know. And um, <laughs> they, they, you know, they were they were guys who just got things done and the Beatles depended on them. There's but a picture. I can't remember which which uh, session of which album it's for. There's a wonderful vignette of uh, of uh, of Mal making beans for Ringo, cooking beans. I think in a frying pan. I think you actually say, 
on the floor of Studio Two, where we wrote over some kind of camping gas arrangement, while while psychedelia is going on all around. You know, it's still if Ringo wants his beans, that's the way he wants his beans. That's the way he likes them done. He needs those beans. He must get them. You know. <laughs> But it starts out with them, him being the kind of gopher because to some extent they're imprisoned, aren't they? They're just so famous that they can't go out and do anything without getting pestered and recognised and stuff. And then very soon he's he's doing absolutely everything for them, facilitating everything. And he helps them move house, doesn't he? In fact, he moves all their possessions when they buy new properties. I mean, it's absolutely incredible because Lily, his wife, is expecting to have days off. But of course, when they're touring, he's working really hard. When they're recording, they still need him. And the times in between, he's still there as their gopher, isn't he? And he's driving up with Neil with a what with a wagon on the back of uh, the estate car so they can get furniture for Ringo that he likes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it is it's pretty crazy. And I I don't know the answer to this other than they were pioneering and they were making up their jobs as they went along. But why didn't anybody ever say, you know, we have two guys and we're really killing them. Maybe we ought to get two more. Let you know what? Let's get four. <laughs> Precisely, but but don't you? I, I get the impression that they that they're nervous about employing people that they don't already know, as it were. I mean, we'll get onto this later when Mal becomes kind of you know, the managing director of Apple. But you know, I think I think they're just they're just secure in their little tiny coterie of people they feel they can trust. Would that be true? I I, I think that's it, really. Um, you know, they uh, particularly because they got so big, so explosively fast that. Um, they absolutely couldn't trust. They they felt like they couldn't trust anybody. And of course, then we know that they make mistakes later in trusting certain people. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think it has everything to do with that. It's also it's also significant that he was a big guy, isn't it? He was he was a kind of shield for them, wasn't he? He was he was a security man as well as everything else, wasn't he? Yeah, he had done a lot of bouncing for Brian Epstein in 62. Um, he had done those ferry cruises that they would play on uh, on the Mersey. Um, so, yeah, he had proven himself in that way, although, you know, his dirty little secret was that he wasn't going to fight anybody. Right. <laughs> and he has a grand total of one dust-up, and that's because a, a member of the media came at George at the Olympia Theater. But other than that, you know, Mal, Mal was a... <laughs> kind of a weenie. I mean, he... he's, he's he's kind of depicted very vaguely, isn't he, in Hard Day's Night, in the in the character played by John Junkin, who's um, I can't remember the, what what the character's name is. You know, who's a is a little bit hopeless kind of thing, a little bit of a butt of butt of the band's jokes. Was was Mal like that with the band? Where did they did they patronise him slightly? I think they did. Um, you know, I, I had a version in my mind of him being kind of oafish before um, putting pen to paper. And his his diaries, his, you know, his manuscripts really betray a different person. You know, he, he was quite well read. Um, he loved uh, cinema, good cinema, in fact, um, in addition to lots of Westerns. Um, of which he was, for which he was obsessed, but Mal was Mal was a thinking person, and he had kind of a pretty dynamic inner life. But he didn't mind being the butt of their jokes because he found that if he were the butt of the Beatles' jokes, they would argue amongst themselves less. 
So right. and Neil, I think he and Neil also played a lot of good cop, bad cop that we'll we'll never quite know the extent of where they would use each other to try to keep the guys moving forward. I suppose you see it's really interesting that, isn't it? Because you've got the four Beatles, and then you've got Neil and, and Mal, and you've got Epstein, and you've got George Martin. And so you've got about eight people, and the second four know that their job is to keep the peace between the first four. You know what I mean? And they must have all just detected when it was about to turn sour within the group and known what they had to do to relieve that situation. That's right. And for the most part, you know, that those two sets of four um, in their own way and with different different levels of, of, of impact pushed over an entire music industry. Yes. It's really remarkable when you think about it. You know, I when when my students talk about the difficulty of getting into business and doing things, I say, well, look at these eight outsiders. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I include George Martin because, as we all know, he was a big fake. You know, yeah. and these eight guys get together, um, sometimes loosely, sometimes on purpose, and they – you can change the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, they they I, point out also, don't they, that, that, or he points out that that a lot of the time the Beatles took it all out. If things were going wrong, they took it out on Mal and Neil. So obviously they just had to kind of soak it all up. They felt that was part of their job. That's right. They were called, as as Neil said, we were called every name in the book. Yeah. but they, they So they were kind of effectively servants, well, and that becomes a debate for Mal, right? Um, you know, am I a servant or am I something more than that? Um, I think they had to be whatever the Beatles needed in the moment. Yeah. So um, they were both, uh, in their own ways, pretty pretty shrewd folks. I mean, for Mal and Neil to hang with, you know, John and Paul and George and Ringo, you, you couldn't be a lightweight, you know, um, particularly as the years went on. Um, uh, you couldn't be a lightweight and hang with that group. So and, there were ge- it was a genuine friendship, wasn't it, between oh, him absolutely. and Bobby. They loved these guys, and and uh, it was mutual, um, you know, and it was this small group that, that with whom they would communicate, even, you know, in the last days of Mal's life, they're calling him up in California. I mean, right. you know, this is that deep of a relationship. Because there's oh, a you, moment you, when the McCartney and, and Mal go off on uh, in an Aston Martin around Europe, I think it's in 66, and you, you realise, I mean, McCartney couldn't possibly have done those things without having Mal with him, because wherever they, they went, they needed a kind of, they needed a, a bodyguard, really, didn't they? He needed a bodyguard, but he also needed someone who would genuinely enjoy the experience with him. And one thing that that makes Mal so interesting is he loves being a tourist, you know? Mm going to places uh, that none of them have really ever been, and they're having experiences they never would have expected, Mal just soaks it all in. And I think he made it possible for them as slightly younger guys to realize, you know, we probably should go see the sights as much as we possibly can. So I think Mal brought that sense of fun uh, that maybe they needed at times. One of the um, functions that uh, he and Neil performed for the Beatles was to hook them up with uh, women. Tell us that about that. That was quite that. a revelation, actually. I, I, didn't you feel, did you find that was a revelation, all that stuff about uh, John describing the tours as being like satirical? Yeah, I think it was. But uh, uh, were you surprised by that, David? 
No, I wasn't surprised. Mark, Mark comes from from you know from Flint no, in Hampshire. I, I didn't realise the extent of the debauchery. <laughs> I knew there was a lot going on, but it was quite organised. But anyway, yeah, I mean, it w- was it organised. I I think it was just so profuse that it was kind of a wave that would come over the touring party, mm. you know, uh, night after night until they stopped it. Really, I mean, you know, the, the Beatles kind of shut the door on a lot of this this extracurricular activity and sometime around 65 it, i get the sense that probably mal and neil were the only ones who were continuing with it um, that's really interesting in 1965 yeah. they decided they had too much sex <laughs> they've had too much sex but you know there there is a moment and, and this is what makes teaching them in the classroom so interesting there is a moment when they realize they're artists Right. When you realize that this insanity on the road, this is not who we're going to be, you know, yeah. I mean, was it before rubber soul? Was it, you know, after they slapped strings onto yesterday and flutes onto, you've got to hide your love away. You know, when was it that they realized, you know, damn it, we're artists and uh, we're going to ride this thing out. This is big. This is important. So that um, brings out that, that comes to the, the thing I was about to mention that, um, you know when they when they finish Candlestick Tart Park or whatever 1966, and then from then on it's going to be in the studios and they all turn up. They've all got mustaches or beards, and uh, you know m- m- nobody sent a memo, but they all got mustaches and beards. Mal and, and, and Mal and Neil did it as well, yes. as you point out, quite unconvincingly in Mal's case. <laughs> but I think that's so interesting. You know. It is. That, that, that that they themselves suddenly got got the similar kind of airs, but but you know during the touring years it was quite clear what Mal and Neil did. Post touring, how did they adapt? Well, you know they kind of expected that they would be sort of on the dole. You know what will our jobs be? George Harrison said, "I guess I'm not a Beatle anymore." You know, so that you've got you've got Mal and Neil thinking, well maybe maybe this is kind of it. You know, I guess Neil's. They're going to move back to Liverpool. Who knows? Um, and of course, it doesn't go that direction at all. They become more in demand because, again, at some point, uh, either consciously or simply via momentum, the boys recognized that their future was as artists in that recording studio. And that's what this was going to be. Um, you know, pinpointing that moment is always is always fun in an academic sense. But, but it really does happen. And of course, suddenly... You know, Mal is not only in the studio for 12, 14 hours a day, but he's driving one or more of them to the studio. Um, he finds himself running out to where their various homes are at, at this point to to uh, to interface with them. And of course, that's why Mal, of course, moves his family down almost equidistant between the different houses. Yeah, right, right. Well, in fact, the recording of Instant Karma is a really good example, isn't it? Because he said he got he got a call at three o'clock in the morning from John Lennon saying, I've just written this song and I want to record it today. And you've got to facilitate that. You know, you've got to get the musicians there and you've got to get the equipment there and we're going to do it today. So in some ways, it was actually more hectic and less organised it was than the Beatles. It was much more hectic. Um, and Mal began to develop a really impressive Rolodex of studio musicians because sometimes, like you just said, sometimes. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Sometimes John would just say, I need a guy who can play acoustic guitar. And he wouldn't say anything more than that. So Mal would you know, look at the various names that he had and the people he trusted. Um, you know, the Anvil's a great example. You know, he Mal knew that there was a theatrical props agency nearby where he could get an Anvil in Twickenham. Mm. Uh, he he became great at that. He befriended all of the uh, instrument vendors so that when they broke a guitar at 4 a.m., Mal knew who to wake up and say, the Beatles need a new guitar. Yeah. <laughs> You know, get over here or I'll meet you at your shop. And it goes without saying that this is all in the days before the mobile phone and the internet. So it was all in somebody's head, wasn't it, really? All the people you needed to call. Yeah, and as as Peter Asher told me, you know, they were very – Neil and Mal did not want to disappoint. So they either tried to imagine what they would need uh, in advance – uh, the Beatles, or they would try to make sure that they had bulletproof ways of, of you know, getting that new guitar in the middle of the night, finding an anvil. Was there was there ever a time when he he thought, well, I, I've I've kind of outlived my my time as a servant. I'd like to move on and do something more exalted. <laughs> well, he always had, uh, you know, I mentioned this inner life he has. He always has ambitions, particularly by the late 60s of being in production. He had started writing songs in Rishikesh. So, you know, like anybody who writes a few songs, you'd kind of like to see them produced, right? <laughs> uh, so Mal is starting to think along those lines. Paul puts the idea in Mal's head that he could be an administrative kind of uh, operator at Apple when he appoints him briefly as managing director, um, which was doomed to fail, by the way, whether it's <laughs> joke or serious. I mean, they were making the White Album. What did they think? Mal was going to be managing director and then put on his roadie cape and work all <laughs> night at, uh, at you know, why there's less fascinating. I just had a... Yes, you, you had a meet- fireworks just you had a, exploded you had a meteor storm, I think. When you mentioned the word roadie cape, there's something super supernatural happened, hey, you know. It didn't happen again, damn it. Anyway, um, you know, I don't know how they thought that was ever going to work and have him be the Mal they want all night while they're making, you know, the double album. 
But yeah. also it must have been very hard for him to step away from it anyway, because he liked the celebrity that he had in association with the Beatles, didn't he? I mean, there was a, a bit where he turns up, I think, to, in John Lennon's psychedelic Rolls Royce to pick up his son Gary from school. So he was really showing off the fact that he was connected with the group. So he wouldn't have wanted to let that go, would he? No, and he was doing more showing off than Gary was doing at school. Yeah. Gary was slightly embarrassed by it, and here's his dad rolling up in the, the oh, loudest man. car you could possibly have in the world. But, but it, that's an interesting, uh, you know, uh, aspect of the relationship, isn't it? That um, although they were not getting paid much money and so forth, they had immense power, didn't they? By virtue, because you couldn't get to the Beatles except via Mal or Neil. That's right. No, they they were they were definitely powerful in that way. And and while they weren't paid, I mean, they're they're being they they have they're the only two employees of Beatles and Company, right? And they're making 40-something pounds a week on average. And their bosses are making, you know, some Well, you talk about the Beatles making 4,000. I think in late 63, the Beatles, two of them, are making 4,000 pounds a week. Brian's making 2,000. And they're making 25 quid each, him and Neil. Yeah. It's amazing. But those, as out of whack as that sounds, you know, Mal and Neil were making a good wage Mm. until around 1971 when there was an inflection point in the economy. You know, until then, they were doing all right. Yeah. Um, Al, of course, Mal is not doing well in the sense that he's trying to do too much with that wage. He's living many lives, as we know, uh, and that is an, an expensive undertaking. So, um, go so, on, many lives in what way? Go on. Well, you know, I mean, he's he's traveling with George uh, by that point very extensively. Um, he does have girlfriends on the road. That doesn't come cheaply, you know. Um, he's, you know, he's he's carrying on, and he's also raising a family in London in the suburbs, which there has never been a time, you know, when that was cheap. There, were, you know, I'm sure there are accounts from from Clarks and Knights where they're like, yeah, I just can't afford to live out here, you know, yeah. from a thousand years ago. So, um, you know, that's that's part of what Mal's dilemma is as as his life develops as he's living in these different kinds of boxes yeah yeah so what's his reaction when they break up uh, he was he was distraught he he cried with paul in the garden famously you know on the day of the the divorce but um he saw it coming uh you know mal was actually quite busy at that time working with badfinger he was trying like the dickens to get you know, in that transition from the Ivies mm. into Badfinger, he was really trying to make them happen. And uh, wow, what rock and roll might be different if Mal had been allowed to stay with that band. So he was quite busy then, but no, he was broken up by it. I mean, it was, it was he was terrible. And also Paul turned to him at that point, didn't he, and said, I no longer need you. I'm going to make this record on my own. He was really, really upset about that. Yeah. Now, now interestingly, the timing of that is is uh, is fascinating to me. You can almost see Paul getting some advice. That would have been in in early 1970, um, somewhat shortly before the McCartney album comes out. And you can almost see the Eastman saying, look, you're suing these other guys in high court to dissolve this partnership. You can't keep using Mal. You can't keep using the accoutrement of the of the company, you know, if if you don't if you don't really want to be in it anymore. I mean, in a way, that letter about, you know, that he famously writes, don't ever, you know, put strings on my songs again without my permission. 
is also a kind of legal salvo to say, look how this partnership is not working for me. So, um, you know, Mal, of course, takes that very badly because he was first and foremost Paul's friend. He would have, you know, been working for him all those years, too, if not for that that moment. So he really becomes he really is the custody of the other three Beatles at that point. But Paul could have explained that to him. I thought it was a bit harsh, really. He could have pointed that out. Maybe he did, and now Mm. in his emotional state. I really can't speak for that because all we have Mm. um, are a couple of of notations of this incident in his diary and in his manuscripts. Um, You know, Mal took it badly. Mal kind of liked, as you probably noticed, working secretly for Paul. You know, he wasn't telling Neil he was working for Paul. Uh, And it was kind of getting under Neil's skin that Mal wasn't being straight with him. He was like a double Beatle agent there for a moment. So when they break up, what does he do? He does more. You know, it's always more. So he he's stage managing solo albums now. He's working on uh, All Things Must Pass, of course, was an enormous project that d- dominated his time for a long time. He worked on uh, Imagine, Plastic Ono Band, the Ringo album, Living in the Material World. You know, these were big, lengthy productions. Uh, by the early 70s, only George and Mal are recruiting new artists for Apple, you know, so he's bringing in acts like Splinter um, and, and a few others. Um, and of course, he's trying to make Badfinger happen until that goes balls up in the worst way for Mal. You know, that that to me, that's that's his big heartbreak um, in the business, more, far more than anything he would ever experience with the Beatles. He just loved the Beatles. And like the rest of the world, wanted to see them back together again. Um, but but Badfinger crushed him. And that was Alan Klein. You know, if you if you read this book thinking you already hate Alan Klein enough, there's a there's a new leaf for you of of Alan Klein caused despair. Because he was not he was not hard nosed in any way, was he really? Mal or yeah, Mal. Mal. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't, and uh, he tried to play it above board with Alan, which was to his doom. I mean, Alan, I don't know why you do that after the guy's already tried to fire you and your best buddy, (laughs) you know. Um, What a moment, too, they must have had when when Alan said, you're fired, and they say, we can't, you can't fire us, we don't work for you. (laughs) Uh, What a magnificent moment. Um, But, of course, they both paid for it. Uh, pretty dearly, you know. Uh, Neil's driven to drink, and Mal is forbidden from ever working for with Badfinger, with whom he produces a top five hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which nobody wanted to put out as a single. Is that right? Nobody. No, Apple. I, I, yeah, the great Alan Steckler, who lives just north of me here in New Jersey, um, he was wonderful on that. I said, "So what happened there?" He said, "Well, I was going through all the songs that we had lying around in the vault, and I found this song, and I thought this is a hit." And he had to like fight like the Dickens to get Alan Klein to put it out, you know, because Alan was basically doing what we all would have expected, which was looting Apple. (laughs) And uh, that that, you know, putting out new material didn't seem to be under his brief. Right, right. But so um, he ends up he, he goes to the United States. When does he go to the United States to live? Well, he's starting to do it covertly in 1973 um and uh around the time of the lost weekend wasn't it because he 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 involved the incident with john lennon breaking a bottle over jesse ed davis's head or whatever (laughs) it's incredible the things he saved them from really 
Oh yeah, no, life and limb were protected many times by Mal. But yeah, it was um, it was in '73 uh, when John was still there, and it, he was living with George at the time. Um, you know, George was spending so much of his time in Southern California, and that's when uh, um, that's when he met Fran Hughes, who was the booking agent at the record plant. And uh, you know, Mal didn't have the nerve to ask her out. Um, I don't think he was being held back by the fact he was married, but uh, he didn't have the nerve to ask her out. So George Harrison, in in that manner that guys have done, you know, for centuries, said, hey, my friend likes you. Uh, you know, would you go out with him? Not thinking that I'm George Harrison saying, will you go out with my friend? And I'm saying it at the record plant, which is, you know, I'm at the apex of our industry. Here I am. Will you date my friend? And of course she does. And um, they're probably living together before Mal goes home for the penultimate time. Uh, and he wouldn't have been busted, right, if not for uh, for Cynthia Lennon and Julian. Go on, in what way? How did that happen? So they go to Disney World, Disneyland in California with John and May and, and Julian, and Mal introduces his girlfriend to them as their cousin, as his cousin. And so, of course, uh, a few months later, when Cynthia and Julian are staying over with Mal's family, Ma the Mal less Mal family, they're like, "We got to meet your cousin." Oh good God! Oh <laughs> God! What that cousin? cousin you know, your American works. cousin never works. You never. <laughs> oh, that's classic. Yeah, and he... uh, Mal's busted, but by then he's decided he's going to live in Southern California, um, and. Uh, and keep his family at bay uh, off in the suburbs. And, and during that time, you get the feeling that, that a load of the people are, are suffering kind of belated depression, aren't they, really? You know, that there's lots of drinking going on, isn't there? There's Mountains of cocaine, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, how's he dealing with all that? Not well, um, actually. You know, he finds he's not clear-headed. He, he confesses more than once that he's not making good decisions. Um, you know, and, and there are loads of people who are depressed. It's a very interesting time when you look at it. And I wonder, again, if some of it has to do with the fact that now you're grown men, yeah. you're rock stars, should you still be doing this? Yes. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, this is in 1973. We still don't think that's a job. No, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's still not something, my God, that you do when you're 80. What? No, definitely not. Definitely not. You know, haven't you outgrown that? So, yeah, I think there is a lot of depression, you know, uh, taking place. And Mal is kind of mopping up some of it. Uh, and he lost his, somebody I think mentions, he, he lost his sense of identity, really, hadn't he, once the Beatles was, was over? He had, but he was, you know, he was rebuilding it. He was... He was working with several local acts to try to be a kind of A&R man and, uh, you know, did him worlds of good when You and Me, Babe, was the, you know, included on the Ringo album. I mean, Mal suddenly making, those are legit residuals, right? I mean, mm. he's seeing coming in and uh, on a song that he'd, he'd been working on for about four years at that point. So, um, you know, George did him a lot of good. He He said, Mal, you want to be... You want to be in production? Take lessons. You know, you want to write a song? Let's get a song on the Ringo album. That'll do you good, right? Uh, George had a great practical approach to their friendship that uh, that was that was so good for Mal. Um, he gets to the the memoirs because his girlfriend says, you know, you ought to do this. Everybody else is writing their memoirs, and 
she had read about Norman Mailer doing the, uh, the the Marilyn Monroe book in 73. And she said, well, you ought to do this too. And so that's how they cook up that idea. But he eventually calls them all individually, doesn't he? And tells them that he, he's no longer working for them. He's going off. Tell us about that. So that was one of the biggest revelations for me. I mean, I had no idea that it happened, that Mal had some moment. In fact, it was happening in during the Toot and the Snore period, right, where they were recording in Southern California, where Paul suddenly shows up at the end of March 1973 at the Harry Nielsen John Lennon session. And of course, Mal is just beside himself with happiness that John and Paul are together and they're nice to each other. You know, this was big for him. Um, it was during that period that Mal said, I've got to get a break from this. I've got to go out. Maybe he was having his moment where he said, I've got to go be an adult now, you know. Um, and uh, he planned to see two Beatles at the estate, but Paul showed up again. So he actually had all three uh, there one, uh, one day where he could tell them, I'm moving on. I've got to go out on, on my own. And they they said wonderful things to him. Uh, Ringo later said to, to Harry Nielsen, um, you know, well, now that Mal's left, the Beatles are really over. Uh, yeah. and kind oh. of a teary moment. But my favorite response is George Harrison. He figured, <laughs> well, I better tell George, too. So he calls him up at Friar Park, and George says, so what? And uh, I have a tape recording where Mal's kind of lamenting. What does that mean when he said, so what? I know exactly what it means. George Harrison didn't believe it for a second. Mal mm -hmm. was not leaving that band. He couldn't do it. Nobody could. Right. You have to fire them. Alan Klein would still be sucking off the, you know, the teat of the Beatles finances at that point if they would have let him. You don't. Nobody leaves. And Mal was not leaving. In fact, a few days later, he's working on the Goodnight Vienna. Album. Yes. <laughs> so tragically, this story ends in 1976, is it? Right at the beginning of the year, January 4th. Tell us about. What happened? Yeah, because his son Gary says that he describes it as how he orchestrated his own death. Did you, you, did you feel did. that's what happened? I know it is. It's uh, precisely what happened. And uh, Mal had probably been thinking about suicide for a while, as folks who do um, often live. Uh, he started telling everybody about how to winterize the duplex, how to take care of the car. You know, he was he was clearly making plans um, and the, the big, the moment, the catalyst came when his wife said she is going to see a solicitor. He had always managed to keep her in his fold in spite of all of this, you know, these, these extracurricular infidelities, et cetera. And she finally just said, as I, I think most people would have said 10 years earlier, I'm really not going to do this anymore. <laughs> I mean, by this point, her, you know, the kids are living on subsistence. They're getting public they're getting public assistance. Uh, she's working a menial job. She's trying to make ends meet. Her husband's still getting paid, but he's living in California with another woman. Yeah. So something's got to give. And uh, it just sent Mal into this tailspin. She never got to the appointment because by that time he was dead, you know, several days later. But it was just the idea that she was going to have this appointment that finished him off. And, and he began to tell everybody who would listen that he's never going to see his kids again, um, which is, you know, irrational. All he had to do to see his kids, and Fran would say this to him, his girlfriend is, get on a plane. Mm -hmm. You can see your kids. You have the means. 
You know, um, there was just a, a kind of irrationality to it. And a January 3rd, I think as close to a suicide note as we'll get, Mal says, please forgive me, I can't go on anymore, and writes up his last will and testament. Now, Fran thinks the next day that Mal seems to have woken up very sober in the light of day. But by the, you know, several several hours later, he sets up a scenario where he's in a room with a gun and everybody else is downstairs or outside. And he tells her to summon the police and he raises the, the, the rifle at them and cops do what cops do. Extraordinary story. It's a sad old, sad tale. It's a really. sad old story, um, yeah. you know, but... Uh, you know, the things that can happen in in one life, you know, that, uh, that appeared to be going along one route and went in a very different one. Was it's, there anything about writing the book and seeing the whole story of the group through the prism of, of Mal? Was there anything that, that, that you learned about that group that you hadn't quite figured out before? Was there any revelation from that? Just you see them differently in any way? Sure, that nobody does it alone, that, you know, you know, we can go to our bookshelves, right, and pull off a book by, you know, Jane Austen or uh, anybody, right? And nobody is doing their great art history alone. It just isn't like that. There may be a few very isolated cases, but everybody needs someone. And it, it's wonderful to learn about how Mal and by extension Neil, how closely they worked with them and how central they were to their success. You know, Brian wasn't lifting amplifiers, right? right. Um, you know, or 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 handling a lot of those kinds of duties. You know, Mal and Neil, uh, Gary Evans came to my Beatles class for the last couple of weeks, and we've had a lot of fun. You know, talking about the fact that they're staying up later and later and later, and that's because Mal's there to mother them, right? To uh, to make a meal for them, as you said, on the floor of Happy Road Studio mm. Two. If there's a ring on the floor there somewhere where they, he's he's burnt something, but uh, in any event, you know Mal is making that possible, um, and and there is an argument that part of the reason we have so much of that great music is there was a guy who was allowing them to extend themselves into the into the night and the next day. Um, you know, the other thing is just extraordinarily busy they were. These guys never. Yes took a break. I mean, now a band will make an album, have some success with it. See in six years, you know, they, they don't take six days off. No. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're just wonderfully interesting workaholics, but they're driven of course, because they're doing something and at a certain level, they know it. That is otherworldly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the book living the Beatles legend. Uh, the Mal Evans story. And uh, thanks very much for talking to us about it, Ken. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.